That's 2 Samuel chapter 4 to chapter 5, verse 3. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel became alarmed. Now Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Banner and the other Rechab. They were sons of Rimon, the Berothite, from the tribe of Benjamin. Beroth is considered part of Benjamin because the people of Beroth fled to Gitam and have lived there as aliens to this day. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now Rechab and Banna, the sons of Rimon, the Berephite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Banna slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head, taking it with them, they travelled all night by way of the Arabah. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to take your life. This day the Lord has avenged my lord the king against Saul and his offspring. David answered Rechab and his brother Bana, the sons of Rimon the Berephite, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of all trouble, when a man told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklub. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed? Should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men, and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and you shall become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. I'm going to come closer because I feel like this is way too far away. Is this close enough, Pete? Is that all right? Cool. Well, with this, this lot of people here, I kind of feel like it's a bit I know, it's a bit silly if I'm standing all the way back up here. I feel like it's almost more like a bit of a Bible study, and, and, uh, and hopefully we can kind of look at things that bit that way. Please, please keep your Bibles open. I'm, going to, I'm kind of working from the, the concept that you will be able to see it and point out verses for yourself as we go along. Um, so please keep them over. And also just a, 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 a note, I'm working from the ESV when you see the, the scripture on screen. So if it's a little bit different, um, but in this case, there's nothing wildly different, no different crazy words. Um, so that's kind of helpful to get going. Um, 
Welcome. We are at a, a pinnacle point, a high point of uh, this part of 2 Samuel. In fact, uh, in studying it, I found that if I was to divide the books of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel up, I'd actually end 1 Samuel at the end of 5 verse 3. Because in our modern sensibilities, this is the end of David being crowned king. He is finally, after all this struggle, after the, the, the Israelites coming to Samuel and whinging and saying, we want a king. And then Samuel going to God and them saying, okay, we'll give a king. And going through all of this struggle through that book, this is kind of that point where finally we get the king that we are waiting for. And then, of course, if we kind of started there and 2 Samuel started after this, it kind of goes through all these horrible things that David does and, you know, and falls, but then redeems himself. Oh, he doesn't redeem himself, but he, you know, he repents. And then, of course, we get Solomon and all these other things coming afterwards. So this is a really interesting point. And uh, I don't know about you. Uh, well, actually, no, I do know about some of you, uh, but I quite enjoy uh, epic narratives, whether they be science fiction or fantasy, I enjoy watching them, I enjoy reading them. Uh, and I know for many of you that's the case as well. We have long discussions about things. Uh, and what's really cool is that God's Word is full of complex narratives. I was listening to a podcast with a guy called Tom Holland. I don't know if you know Tom Holland. He's one of the, the really well-respected historians at the moment. Uh, he's, he's written a bunch of books. His most popular book at the moment is called Dominion. I'd encourage you to check it out. Um, but he's not a Christian. But one of the big things he says is that Christians need to realize they actually have the most compelling and interesting narrative in the Bible in the entire earth. There's nothing more compelling and interesting than what we have in our Bible in terms of narrative and interesting characters and things. And I, I can tell you truly, as I've been reading and preparing uh, for this week, and uh, the, everything happens so fast in these passages. But when you unpack them, you realize there's so much going on, so much, but there's a lot of stomach stabbing going on, by the way. I don't know if you picked that up. Um, from what I understand, I'm not a historian, from what I understand, they go for the stomach because then the acid from your stomach pulls out and it causes you a really painful death. Uh, it's gruesome and gross, but that's what you did. Okay, so that's going on. It's epic narrative. Now, I really love epic narratives, like I said. Uh, and, uh, and of course, in most epic narratives, there is this pivotal moment, isn't there? There's a point where we're led to believe that if certain things don't happen, the end result would be widely different and depressing. An example I can give you, of course, is Frodo in the Ring. I don't know if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, if you've caught the new series yet. Uh, I've been watching it. I've been very disappointed with many things overall, but it's not too bad. Um, but, you know, we get this moment, don't we, in the Lord of the Rings, that if Frodo doesn't throw the ring into the fire... Oh. Hey man, you've had a good chance to, to catch up with it so far, Will. Uh, it's been as a book out for, I think, like 70 years. Um, and uh, as a movie, at least 20 years. Okay, something like that. Uh, if he doesn't throw the ring in the fire, we're led to believe that Sauron will prevail. Sauron will win. And there's nothing they could do to stop him at that point. It all hinges on Frodo getting that ring in the fire. And then, of course, if you're a bit more of a science fiction nerd, I love science fiction too. In Star Wars Episode 4, we can talk about why it's Episode 4, even though it was made first. Uh, what happens is Luke Skywalker, our hero, has to hit his lasers into this tiny target. Well, it's tiny for lasers and, and spaceships, apparently. But this tiny target, and if he doesn't do that, 
There's no other way. There's no other chance to ever take down the evil empire. This is typical in narrative, right? This pivotal moment that if it doesn't occur, the whole thing falls apart. Well, what a relief to know that God's narrative is not like that. God's narrative never hinges on one point, one man-oriented effort that if it fails, the whole thing falls apart. You see, in the Bible, God wins regardless of whether or not it seems like the bad guys have the upper hand or whether the key characters play their part as they should. God wins. That's really cool. So let's get a little bit of an understanding because for today's passage, to understand a bit more, we need to understand what's going on in Saul's family tree. Now we know Saul's dead already. Okay, we've, we've read that far. Hopefully you're keeping up at least with that much. But let's, let's kind of get a bit of a recap of what was going on. So first of all, we know that the kingdom is split into two. We've got the southern kingdom, which is called Judah, and David has been crowned king of that part of the kingdom. Then we still have the northern kingdom, which is, of course, called Israel. That's the green part there. And Saul is still the king in Israel, or was still the king in Israel. And so he's got control of those sections. But all of this is meant to be one kingdom. Okay, It's meant to be. It's split in two at the moment. It's not the first time it splits, by the way. It splits many other times. But it's split at the moment. And we're here. Here we are. Here's Saul's family tree, by the way. You can see it comes from the tribe of Benjamin. There's a guy called Ner and Kish, and, and there's Saul. And then hopefully you notice there up on the right there, Abner. We heard about Abner last week, and we'll, we'll recap a little bit again today. Abner was this incredible army commander, but he was also Saul's uncle. You can see Saul there. He has four legitimate children. Uh, and then he has two kind of illegitimate children to a concubine. And then he has two daughters as well, which I know sounds really depressing, but in this day and age, daughters were kind of the low members of the family. They weren't the, um, the princesses that we now might think of them as. And then we can see here, uh, Jonathan has a son, which we heard a little bit about today. We're going to go into that uh, later. But of course, in 1 Samuel, the end of 1 Samuel, we heard that Saul died. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines. But sorry, before we heard Saul die, we hear his sons, uh, Jonathan and his other sons die. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and I don't know how to say that one. It's Malchishua, I think it is. Okay, it's like Joshua, but with Malchi at the start. Okay, uh, and those three sons are struck down. So what do we have in Saul's family tree? Well, when you think about kingdoms, the family tree is really important because it's how the kingdom continues, right? The kingdom continues through birthright and through blood. Well, we've just lost three, three of those potential successors to Saul. And then we hear that Saul dies in the same chapter from 1 Samuel uh, 31. And later on, because I'm going to go straight to verse 5. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul, sorry, verse 4. Uh, but his armor bearer would not kill him, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Saul fell upon his sword. Rather than be killed and taken by the Philistines, those uncircumcised Philistines, how dare they? Okay, uh, he fell upon his sword. And so Saul is now dead. Doesn't look very good for Saul's family tree so far, does it? Let's keep going. 
Because then what we have is we have this other story in 2 Samuel 2, where Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Manahim, uh, Mahanim. And he made him king over Gilead. So what's going on next? Well, because Ishbosheth is next in line, he now becomes king. Okay? Ishbosheth is the next in Saul's line. We've got the three sons already dead. Saul is dead. Ishbosheth becomes king. And then we're told at the start of chapter 3, there's a long war between the house of Saul. When it says the house of Saul, it doesn't just mean Saul's alive. It means his family, his kingdom, and the house of David. And the David grew stronger and stronger. But the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And so we've got this picture right now. We've got Saul dead. Three of his sons are dead. Ishbosheth is now king. And then what we hear in last week's chapter that Clem was able to preach for us. When Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Abner had killed Asahel in battle. Okay, well, kind of in battle. Asahel had pursued him. I don't know if you remember this, but it's like this pursuit where Asahel's on his horse and Abner's on his horse and he turns around and he's like, Asahel, what are you doing? And he's kind of like, you know, he's pursuing him to kill him. So in battle, Abner kills Asahel. This enrages Joab and Joab, in seeking vengeance, kills Abner. Again, we're weaker and weaker. We have another side of the family line, but also this incredible army commander who has now been killed. Abner is dead. Saul is dead. The three sons are dead. So what we have here is these other two sons here, which are not suitable to be king. These guys can't follow the family line. They're sons of concubines. Okay. Now, now again, our modern sensibilities, we might think, well, hold on, don't they have just as fair a chance as anyone else? But no, in, this is an ancient kingdom that is not okay. You cannot have the son of a concubine become king. So they're not good enough. And then we've also got two daughters. And again, in our modern sensibilities, how dare they say they can't be princesses and rule the kingdom? You can't. You just can't in ancient Israel. You have to go to battle and all this sort of stuff. And it's not right and it wasn't appropriate for women to be the king. So the kingdom hangs on these two people here. Saul's entire kingdom hangs on Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth. These Besheth names. I'm interested to know what Besheth means. Um, but these two people are what the whole kingdom hangs on. So what's going on in the story? We see that Saul's kingdom is falling apart. And we see that Ishbosheth is the next best chance for Saul's line to continue. And thus, he's got a claim to the throne. But what happened last, last couple of weeks in chapter 2 and 3 that changed some of this stuff? Because this is really interesting stuff, and it kind of covers what we kind of saw. So again, we've got the southern kingdom, David, the northern kingdom, Saul's kingdom, of course, now ruled by Ishbosheth. We have David, and we were told in the last couple of weeks that David had his commander, Joab, and that he had two brothers who were also warriors, Abishai and Asahel. And Saul had this commander, Abner, who was also his uncle. And of course, Saul was killed or died, killed himself, jumped on his sword, and he's replaced by Ishbosheth. And then what we have happened in the last couple of weeks is Abner killed Asahel, Joab's brother. Okay, And then in response to that killing, Joab, who is incredibly angry, and rightfully so, it's his brother. He wants to avenge his brother's death. He kills Abner. 
And again, we're left with Saul's kingdom or Ishbosheth's kingdom now severely depleted. So, this all leaves us in a starting point for day today, where we have Saul's kingdom or Ishbosheth's kingdom now incredibly depleted. Where are we? Okay. Now, if you're a sports fan, okay, maybe you're a sports fan, maybe you're not. Every sports fan knows this moment. The same as every reader or movie watcher. It's the moment when that key playmaker is knocked out. Okay, for some reason in a tackle, he's been knocked out cold. He's sent to the HIA box. And you know, without that key playmaker, your game's done. Okay, it's five minutes to go. Your team is down and there's just too many points to recover, particularly without your key playmaker. Or, you know, maybe it's in literature. The main rival champion has been defeated and the enemy generals, all they can do is stand there shaking in their boots, waiting for the hero to finish the battle and come and claim what is rightfully theirs. You see, little is left for Ishbosheth to draw courage from. And we're told in the first verse of our passage today that when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed. He sees the writing on the wall, right? He's sitting there and going, I've lost my dad, who was the king, a strong warrior king. I've lost my three older brothers who were also warriors. I've lost my great uncle who was also this incredible army commander. He's got nothing that he can draw his courage from anymore to believe that maybe he can have some sort of victory over David. See, Abner was super important to his reign. He was a strong commander. He's also the one who crowned him. But in fact, it's not just Ishbosheth, is it, who's losing courage? All of Israel is dismayed. We saw there at the end there, and all Israel was dismayed. So it's not just the king who's sitting there going, oh no, this is all over. Everybody in the kingdom is like, what is happening? We've lost all those important people who are meant to be looking after us and ensuring our victory. And then from that point, this low point in the story, where we hear that this, you know, and of course, when I say low point, I'm not saying we see this low point, because of course we're on David's side, right? We're not on Ishbosheth's side. But it is a low point. It's a low point for what's going on. But then we're introduced to these two new military figures, Bana or Bana and Rechab. And they are captains of raiding bands. I don't know about you, but captain of a raiding band does not sound like a glamorous title. Not when we have commanders of entire armies being our standard for important military figures in this story. Perhaps in our modern sensibilities, we might wish to glamorize them and think that maybe they're like a small rebel guerrilla force. But it's clear from the strange title, we're not meant to get respect for these guys. We're not meant to see their military stature and go, oh, these are guys that I like. We're meant to see that title and go, oh, who are these guys? Seem like pretty random guys. And uh, once we've been introduced to these guys, we go on a little bit further. We've got this kind of weird part of the passage, but it gives a little bit more of a clue as to why Israel might be dismayed. And it's because of this. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. What a tragedy. It's a horrible tragedy. 
right? The nurse is trying to protect him. Something happens. He falls over. He loses his feet. He can't walk. Now, this doesn't make him a lesser person or anything like that, but it does, very importantly, make him unable to be the next in line. Why? Well, because even though in our modern context this might seem unsavory, this is a time when kings couldn't just lead in the throne room or in the parliamentary office. They also had to be on the battlefield. And so although we will have pity and care for Mephibosheth, and so we should, we have to understand that he was still in this time not right to be king. And so this kind of adds to our understanding that there is now no successor to Saul's throne if Ishbosheth is out of the way. Ishbosheth is the end of the line. This, of course, leaves all of Israel dismayed and Ishbosheth's courage fails. I don't know about you, but if I knew the family line, the kingdom line was all on my shoulders, I'd be feeling pretty scared. So, what do you do when your team is down and it's clear you're going to lose the battle? Well, tonight, there's an important game. Now, forgive me if you are not a sporting person and you don't care about the football at all. Maybe you don't. I didn't used to care too much. I married into it. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you more about that later if you like. I always thought that footballers were overpriced athletes, um, paid way too much to do too little. But tonight is a big game. Okay, On our left here, if you don't know, this is the Penrith Panthers. Okay, uh, The Penrith Panthers, I think I'm actually... I'm rooting for the Penrith Panthers tonight, I'll be honest. Uh, to be honest, I think the first team I ever supported was probably Penrith. Um, I'm not jumping on the bandwagon. It's because I remember when Greg Alexander, if, you, if you're a, a, a football person, you might remember him. He was their big marquee player back in the early 90s. And I always loved him as a player, as a kid. Um, but of course, we've got the underdogs, the Eels. Okay, I know Matt's cheering for the Eels tonight. Julia, Julia, will, I'm sure, will be cheering for the Eels tonight at home. Uh, these guys haven't won a premiership in how long? 50, 60, 100 years? 30, how much? 36. 36 years, although I, I was reminded this morning that we're robbed by the storm because the storm broke the salary cap, all that sort of stuff. But what do you do? Okay, Penrith are this incredible team at the moment. They are on top of the game. Now, I kind of want to see them win because it's rare that you see a team win two like, grand finals in a row in any sport. Okay, But also, a team from the West... Like, come on, most of the teams that do that are the East, Eastern Suburbs teams or, you know, the Melbourne team or something like that. So to see a team from the West win two seasons in a row, I kind of like that. Plus, like the school I teach at, I mean, the kids worship Nathan Cleary. Like, we're having to shave off mullets every second day. Um, but what do you do when your team's losing? Well, you jump on the bandwagon, right? If you've talked to Sean at all recently, Sean Bostock, he's a diehard, tragic Tigers fan, just like Gav. But I think, you know, he's been broken. He's told me he is happily jumping on the Penrith bandwagon. Those guys are winning. He'll jump on. But of course, it's one thing to know your team is the losing side and want to jump ship. It's another to be accepted by the winning team, isn't it? It's not enough just to buy a jersey. You've got to prove your loyalty. So what happens after we see that the whole team is losing for Ishbosheth? Well, these guys commit an in-house betrayal, don't they? 
these two raiding band captains who can see that their team is losing, what do they do? Well, in the middle of the night, they make their journey to Ishbosheth's room, his house where he lives, and they pretend they're going to get wheat. Just getting some wheat, guys, walking in. And no one suspects them, of course, because these guys are meant to be loyal to Ishbosheth. They're captains at some point down the ladder in his army. No one stops them from walking in. They walk in, and what do they do? They see that Ishbosheth is having a bit of a day nap. Okay, poor old Ishbosheth, he has gone down, you know, maybe he's had to play with the kids that morning and he's wrecked. Okay, no pepper pig to put on in those times. Okay, uh, he's having a day nap. And these guys, they come in, what do they do? They stab him and they chop his head off. Again, with the stomach stabbing. Okay, they chop his head off. Because what they see is, here's our chance. We can get in. We can get inside and we can go to David and we can kill Ishbosheth for David. Ishbosheth, the last of the line. If we kill him and prove ourselves to David, we can jump on that bandwagon. Maybe David's going to go, oh, you guys are awesome, and give us crowns and put this in his kingdom. So they grab the head. I'm hoping they put it in some sort of bag, maybe an esky, who knows. Um, and they jump on their horses and they ride through the night to get to David. Bainer and Rechab, they kill their own king in order to try and prove some sort of loyalty or some sort of commitment to the king they can see is definitely going to win this battle. But David is not impressed. He doesn't turn around and give them a medal. I'm sure that they were rudely shocked at David's response. You see, people kept coming to David thinking he's going to reward them. But they seem to keep misreading him. This is not the first time this has happened. In fact, I think it's about the third or fourth time. See, because what we're doing here, we're reminded that David never truly saw Saul as his enemy. It was others that assumed that David saw Saul this way. And hence, they acted in a manner believing this to be the case. They believed that just because Saul was the king and David was the new meant to be king, that they must be enemies and hate each other. Yes, we know that the death of Ishbosheth has advantages for David. But he never sought it and he didn't want it to occur that way in such an unrighteous manner. He wanted it to come in God's timing and in God's character. See, David knows that God will always win. David knows that God will fulfill his promises and that he doesn't need to engage, engage in unrighteousness, unrighteousness to make it happen. See, for David, there's no need for a seedy underbelly of rebellion. There's no need for off-the-books assassins. There's no desire for political maneuvering to ensure success for himself. David knew already that Solomon, his son, would one day be sworn to this. In 1 Kings, it says this, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. These are words spoken to Solomon, David's son. But David already knew, as a king, this was his job to execute justice and righteousness. And I'm really hoping that you begin to pick up what's an incredibly important word in all of this. Righteousness. But in our modern day and age, 
to declare that we seek to be righteous leaves us with this distinct feeling that we must be the bad guys, right? Perhaps this has to do with the confusion between seeking righteousness and self-righteousness. Let's have a look at a few definitions. I don't know if you've thought about these two things before, but this idea of being righteous, these are just dictionary definitions, to be morally right or justifiable. Let's have a look at the difference between that and self-righteousness. Having or characterized by a certainty, especially an unfounded one, that one is totally correct or morally superior. So what you can see here is this difference, right? So one, to be righteous is actually to be morally right. So you, you, obviously you're founded in your moral rightness. Or there is an absolute there that you are that. Whereas the self-righteousness is, I think I'm right. I'm certain of myself, but I've got no reason to actually back myself up as to why I am right. I've just determined I am. So who gets to decide then? Because at the end of the day, without any grounding in something other than ourselves, aren't we all just self-righteous? Well, absolutely. That's why we seek God's righteousness, God's morality. How do we know? How do we know how to seek righteousness? Well, we seek it in God. He gets to decide what is righteous. He decides what is morally right or justifiable. And how do we know that? Well, we seek his word. God is knowable. How good is that? He's not some ethereal figure that we can just always guess at what he might think. He has given us his word to know him. We are seek to seek to know him and to know his righteousness and to live in that way. These are big concepts. The idea of righteousness is a big concept. It's an important one. So we must be sure we don't stray from orthodoxy. Now, remember, Ben reminded us a few weeks ago that orthodoxy just means right knowledge of God. But for many of us, we've translated it as this ugly word that means old-fashioned. It's not it. Orthodoxy is a good thing. It means that we're staying on the true path, the narrow path. We're seeking right knowledge of God. And in this, this sense, we want to know what is righteousness, what is God's righteousness. So, in his attempt to seek God's righteousness, David never took the many chances he had to murder Saul. David doesn't take his chance to murder Saul's army commander, Abner. And again, he doesn't seek out the death of Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth, in order to take the throne of Israel for himself. David instead trusts in God's promise that he is to be king and continues to pursue righteousness in his actions and awaits his promised blessings so when the two raiding band captains present their attempt at a pious offering he punishes them despite the advantage it gives him he wanted the victory but not in that way then david speaks well of the murdered king and dispels any rumors that may have been potential rumors that might be flying around that he ordered the killing and finally david honors Ishbosheth by burying his head what he has of his remains alongside his great uncle Abner. It's really important here that we learn from David that we have to seek righteousness. Seek what is morally right and justifiable in God's eyes. And we also need to make sure that we love righteousness more than success. 
See, no matter how noble our intentions are, unrighteous means are never justified by our ends if we are Christians. It doesn't matter what the end goal is. We need to get there in a righteous manner. Instead, we, like David, must trust in God that he will accomplish those things he has promised. Unrighteous, wicked efforts to bring in God's kingdom never work for those for who, in the way that they hope, them, they hope they will. Which I suppose begs the question, I don't know about you, but I definitely feel like the question for me from this passage is, did God intend for all of these things to happen? There's a lot of murder going on here. Okay, some pretty horrible stuff. Heads being chopped off. People, you know, and their relatives being killed. I think the bigger idea here is not so much did God intend it, but that God accomplishes his purposes despite the wickedness of men. Now, again, we're reminded that we point that to the cross, right? And Jesus being crucified. I'm sure those people who are enacting that torture upon Jesus, they thought they were doing what they wanted, and they were. They were doing wicked things. But despite their wickedness, God's purposes are still accomplished. You see, unlike the narratives we see in movies, TVs, books, and other fictions, God's narrative doesn't rise or fall based on the actions of men and whether or not they can destroy a magical ring or aim lasers into a tiny target. God accomplishes his purposes regardless of our successes or our failures. What an incredible thing to give us hope and encourage us to seek him and his righteousness. Well, one thing that our story does share in common with popular fiction is the all-important ceremony when victory is finally at hand. Here we have Star Wars at the end of that first episode where they get their medals and, and Chewbacca groans and there's incredible John Williams music playing. Okay, It's amazing. And then, of course, at the end of Lord of the Rings, finally, after all of the battle, we see Aragorn crowned king over Middle-earth and as the king of Numenor. But of course, these ceremonies, they don't mean much unless you understand the depth of sacrifice and the success of the victory, the length of the waiting, right? If you just watched that ceremony part of a movie or read the ceremony part of a book, you'd be like, oh, that's kind of cool. But when you've seen it all and you've seen the battle, you've seen the struggle, then you go, wow, finally, it's happened. The final verses that we're looking at today are this crowning ceremony. They are all coming to David as the king. Now, the last time, interesting point, that all the elders actually came together, as in there's, there's not another point they come all together, all these elders, was when they came to demand the king for Israel. So it's interesting that this bookend is they all come back together again when David is finally made king. And as they come to him, he makes a covenant with them. Now, it's, it's really important here in the language that David's the one that makes the covenant. Why is that important? Because it's the same the way in which God makes a covenant with his people and he makes a covenant with us. He makes the covenant. He dictates the terms. The leaders don't come to David and say, oh, can you rule over us? But you've got to do this, this, and this for us if you do. David says, this is what I will do. The same way that God does when he makes covenants with us. And finally, the kingdom is one. Woo! That's awesome, right? You know, we get this final picture here. That's what, like I said, I feel like this is this nice bookend of the stories here where the kingdom is one, David is crowned king, and there's this nice kind of finished point to it all. It's a kingdom united. 
And it points to how we all fall under the reign of Christ in the future. It's really important, though, in these last couple of verses, that David's kingship didn't need him to conquer the north. He didn't need to go up there with his armies and take them all down and force them. He didn't need to govern against their will. It was their call. They traveled to him. Okay, so the, the, the Israelite leaders came to David. They want him to be their king. Why do they want him to be their king? Well, here we go. First of all, we've got verse 1. They acknowledge that they are already his. They are his bone and flesh. See, we come to Jesus in the same manner. Here, He is our brother. We are his body. Not he is our body. We are his body. We approach Jesus in the same manner. We are his. Secondly, in verse 2, that they acknowledge his victory. That he was the one that really was leading them all along in the sense of battle and victory against the Philistines. And despite our allegiance to other kings, Jesus is still Lord. Jesus is the one who defeats our enemy, Satan. We come to Jesus acknowledging that he is the one who has had the victory. Just like they come to David, where they acknowledge, first of all, that they are already his. They second of all acknowledge that he is the one with the victory. We come to Jesus in the same way. And then finally, again in verse 2, they acknowledge that God has spoken this. They acknowledge his role as shepherd. And again, this points to Jesus as the Prince of Peace, the King and the Good Shepherd. We are his people. He is our shepherd. As I mentioned, these things are a model for how we come to Jesus. We come as his body. We belong to him. He is our savior. He's been victorious over death. And he is our shepherd. Now, as a result of God's final victory on the cross and the guarantee of his coming again, we don't ever have to lose courage like Ishbosheth or be dismayed like Israel. We are on the winning team. We don't have to jump on the bandwagon. We're already there. What an incredible encouragement to know that the victory is secure. So a couple of things just to remember and take away. First of all, remember that God is, was, and always will be victorious. It's hard. Sometimes we see or we might feel, particularly as Christians, that the world is victorious. And the world will have victories. There'll be times where they'll shut down churches. They'll stop us from being able to share the gospel. They'll probably can SRE at some point. There'll, seem, there'll be seeming victories, but we know that God is ultimately victorious. As we seek to contribute to God's kingdom, to please the king, do all things with righteousness as defined by the king. Seek that righteousness. Remember we're reminded in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about, I don't know if you remember the part, he's talking about the birds of the, 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 the air and the lilies of the field and how God just takes care of them. You know, when you're worried about where your next meal's coming from, you're worried about your provisions, what does God say? What does Jesus say? He says, well, first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And those things will be added unto you. In other words, seek God's kingdom and his righteousness and he will just take care of you. 
He will look after you. He will provide for you. That's awesome. But again, ties back to that term righteousness. One of those things I think we, we kind of lose sight of a little bit. It's been a really hard week for us in our house. Um, we've been sick, like really sick. Like I think I've been sicker than I've ever been with fevers. Beth, at one point, a couple of points during this week, like she was like clocking up like 40 degree temperatures. And like I touched her body and her body was like on fire. And it's been horrible. And as if some of you as parents will know, you know, one parent being sick sucks because you've got to take all the load. When both of you are sick, like you're stuffed. <laughs> um, we were really blessed that best parents were able to take the boys for a day. I was able to kind of put myself together and look after them at other points and things like that. And I can admit, absolutely, I've not been entirely righteous this week in the way that I've looked after my boys. <laughs> it's been really hard. Now, you might give me a bit of a hall pass for that and say, it's okay, John, you were sick. But for me, I look at that and go, yeah, okay. But even in that moment, I want to continue to pursue God's righteousness. Like, that's our lesson, right? In our hardest moments, we want to continue to pursue it. Our final bit of application there is to remember... That we want to approach the true king, approach Jesus as a member of his body, acknowledging his victory and knowing him as shepherd. That's really cool. To know that we are descendants of Jesus. We are his. We are relations. We're his, we, at sometimes he's called our brother as well as our savior and our shepherd. What an incredible relationship that is. Not only that, we know he's victorious and he is our shepherd. He wishes to love us, look after us, lead us and teach us. And finally, this is really encouraging. In Isaiah, which contains many bits of prophecy, one of the bits of prophecy which many of you will probably be familiar with because it talks about Jesus' birth. In Isaiah chapter 9, it says this, For, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Already this sounds amazing, right? This prophecy of Jesus to come. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It's incredible to know that we have a king who is victorious, who sits upon his throne and rules with justice and righteousness. Let me pray for us. Dear God, we're just so, so thankful that we can be called part of your body because of your son's victory. And we're so thankful that from there, you seek to shepherd us, to know us, to love us, and to push us to grow more and more like your son. God, we just pray that as we do that, you will help us to seek your righteousness. Help us to understand what that means, to not shy away from it, God, and to make it a priority in our actions, in our words, in our minds, in our hearts. So thankful for these books, God, um, for the incredible narrative that they contain, for the way in which we can learn so much about you from them, but also, God, we can be encouraged and reminded of who you are and our relationship to you. Amen.